0: I am so excited to bring you today's guest. He's one of my oldest friends, an incredibly talented artist, an all-around amazing human, and he just happens to be a best-selling author as well. I'm talking about the one and only James Brandon. Brandon produced and played the central role in the internationally acclaimed tour of Terrence McNally's Corpus Christi for a decade. Uh, He is co-director of the documentary film based on their journey, our journey, but we'll talk about that in a minute, Corpus Christi playing with Redemption. He is the co-founder of the I Am Love Campaign, an arts-based initiative bridging the faith-based and the two SLGBTQ plus communities and serves on the board of the Bay Area American Indian Two Spirits in San Francisco or Bates. Brandon has been a contributing writer for the Post, Believe Out Loud, and Spirituality and Health Magazine. He is the author of the 2019 novel Ziggy, Stardust, and Me, and now has a new book hitting the shelves this month, The Edge of Being. Good morning, Brandon. Thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Good morning, Kat. What a great intro. It was so fun to hear all that, just coming from <laughs> your mouth, one of my dearest friends.
0: <laughs> Brandon and I were uh, in that tour of, of Corpus Christi together. Uh, he played uh, gay Jesus, or Joshua, and I was God, his father. Um, and it was an amazing <laughs> journey that we took. Um, and so, Brenna, yeah, was, I met you as an actor, and then grew to know you as a producer because you and, and your co-conspirator Nick Arnson you know, ultimately produced that decades-long tour of Corpus Christi, which was supposed to just be one weekend, by the by, y'all, when we started. It was one weekend, yeah. 10 years later. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, yeah. the, the, the film, the documentary about us bringing this message of love to, to not not always places that wanted to hear it. Um, but now you're <laughs> an author. Um, How did you move from focusing on building a career as an actor to now you're releasing your second book? I think it's safe to say you are are squarely planted in your career as a writer.
1: I know it's, it's, it's completely surreal actually, but you know, it's, I, I definitely think the Corpus Christi experience as you just um, outlined for everyone um, in a really tight nutshell, because it is its own show really, isn't it? To talk about everything (laughs) that we went through with that. Um, but it, as it was a decade long journey, it definitely, um, not only enhanced my self as an actor, but it enhanced myself as a human. And I think because the theme for me as a person and me now as a writer is, is reclamation. And, uh, during Corpus Christi in that experience, as you mentioned, it was the gay Jesus play. Um, in a very tight nutshell, but it's so much more than that. And the much more than that is the reclamation of a spirituality, of a faith that ousted so many homosexuals um, from their chosen table of, of beliefs. And this play, kind of what it did um, is it told them a story to them through their eyes and through their lens, uh, a story they were familiar with but were told they'd never belonged in. And in the journey of that experience, it opened me up to exploring so many different facets of what it means to belong. And after each show, we would have talkbacks with audience members. And the audience is actually the reason why, yes, it was supposed to be one weekend, end up being 10 years, because the audience has <laughs> kept in making it happen with us, Right. Yeah. And in those talkbacks, I learned and met so many different kinds of people that it was the kind of it kind of I say this all the time, but it kind of burst my white my white gay cis male bubble. You know, like I I met Two Spirit folks who were opening themselves up to us. I met trans folks who were telling me their story, and each one was telling a story through their lens about reclaiming their power. From either a white patriarchy or from you know uh, a binary world that controls who or what they're supposed to love, and became and owned it and became their own and through it, and I think that's why it opened me up to realize I have so much more to say um, beyond acting and and writing just kind of naturally came out of that. Um, and I have to say, because of meeting all of those kinds of people, those different peoples, I started to open up to the idea that I, about the sense of belonging that, you know, I I, I came out when I was in my early 20s, um, but I never felt a rootedness in this world because I never knew my history. I never was taught anything about queer history. And I spent so many years just trying to survive in this world that I never allowed the space to really learn where I came from. And it was through the show of Corpus Christi and through those talkbacks of meeting people that I started to actually learn where I came from. And that's when I started diving into queer history and at the GLBT Historical Society in San Francisco and talking to my elders and just really learning where we come from. And that's why I decided I needed to start writing about this because... We don't teach it, and we don't learn it, and it's time we
0: do. I have so many places I could segue from there. I, I just want to <laughs> digress and I, I have to tell just this brief story. I'll try to make it brief. But this this idea of reclamation, right? And I and I talk a lot about, you know, artists we're supposed to be the conscious, you know, of of our society, right? If we're doing our job and, and that we force conversations or 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 forge conversations that that aren't happening elsewhere, or create spaces where people can access information in a in a different way. And for some folks, a safer way, right? Sitting inside of a 99 seat black box theater and that is what made corpus christi so powerful like going to these communities that to your point brandon right have been told that that god did not love them Uh, and for them to experience so much love and y'all i mean people would come up in in droves you know afterwards uh in tears thanking folks for experience but there was this one night we were in la at a theater off of melrose i can't think of what it what it is the zephyr theater the, the zephyr Mm -hmm. And we we had, you know, we did the show. And at the end, of course, because it is the gay Jesus story, Jesus is is Joshua is crucified. And there's many of us at his feet weeping. And this man got out of the audience and came and knelt and kissed your feet, Brandon. Mm. Like that, you have to remember Mm -hmm. that. Like we all were just like.
1: I just got chills.
0: It was so powerful. And, and and that just speaks to the power, you know, of of, of the work, of course, uh, may he rise and power transmittality of 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 our our, mm-hmm. our crew, but also just of you as a human, right? And the way that you just submerged yourself into all of that every single night, mm-hmm. night after night, year after year. And I find that same vulnerability and submersiveness in your writing, and it is such a joy to be able to to experience that part of you, you know, in, in, in the written form. Um, mm.
1: Thank you. That's beautiful.
0: The work is beautiful.
1: That, you know, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. And I mean, you know, I, I, it was a really, that was a powerful moment of so many, right? Like that, that was, there were so many that I could think of along that journey. And I, you know, one of my, always my favorite moments is, cat you and i walking hand in hand into the aud into the auditorium wherever that was be it a church basement or (laughs) you know a, a 99 seat theater or like a theater on off broadway you know what i mean like we we did it all and every time walking hand in hand with you was was that sense of connectedness i'm talking about it was the thing that kept me grounded Uh, in a world that was, I mean, we, we went through many different aspects of societal change with this show. Um, I mean, we saw, um, you know, marriage equality pass during the, during the process of doing the show, you know, like we, we were part of a change and it was a really important, as you say, art has a way of creating dialogue and that's what it did for us. Um, and uh, yeah, and I think that's why it's so easily translated into writing for me.
0: Um, so. you, you talked about, uh, James Brennan, you talked about learning your history, right? And 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 wanting to use your writing as a way to, to be able to talk about queer history. And you did that, you know, with your first book, um, Ziggy Stardust and Me, which was set in 1973, which was the last year that... Um, being gay was considered a mental illness lately, um, mm-hmm. and then this this book, *The Edge of Being*, um, the the Compton Cafeteria riots play a, a pretty um, important role. Um, first, I'd like you to, for my listeners who don't know, talk about what what the Compton Cafeteria event was, um, and and speak about it as a predecessor to, of course, the Stonewall um, rebellions. Um, but then I'd like you to talk about. The opportunities and challenges of weaving facts, right, historical facts, into fiction writing.
1: Right. Well, yes. Yeah, so the Compton's Cafeteria. So it was a new. Uh, it was a new concept to me too, as it as many moments in queer history are for me. I mean, I've I've learned a lot uh, since I've begun writing and researching. I've lots of different things I'm working on now because of it. But um, I remember I was with my friend Steve Sosoyev, and we were walking through streets of San Francisco, and we were in the Tenderloin, and I was just looking down and saw this plaque on the ground. It's this bronze plaque that's embedded in the sidewalk. And in it, it started talking about, at this place, Compton's Cafeteria, uh, existed in 1966, and it's the first known, full-scale, trans and queer U.S., a riot in U.S. history, and this was I it was three years before Stonewall happened, and I couldn't I couldn't believe I didn't know anything about it. I'd never heard anything about it, so I just that's where I went down my rabbit hole. I was like I got to know what this is, and um, you know, in a nutshell, it's it's basically in in that summer of '66. So. So just a quick little backstory about the time. There, there was this, this penal code at the time, 650.5 is what it was. And it was basically um, considered a misdemeanor to, quote unquote, personify someone other than yourself, which basically meant, you know, and it was, it was considered one of the masquerade laws of the time. And one of those many laws started out in the early 19th or the late 19th century. Which was basically meant to stop farmers who'd started dressing like Native Americans to stave off tax collectors. So that then in the early part of the 20th century got translated into uh, targeting trans folks and you know, most notably sex workers, and most notably black and brown sex workers, right? So if you were caught wearing clothes that didn't correspond with your assigned sex at birth, you were arrested. And that happened often, very frequently. In fact, black and brown trans folks considered it as commonplace as brushing their teeth, the police harassment that they had to deal with, but they stood their ground. Um, and, and, and quite often, bucked the system by figuring out a loophole in this, this, this uh, penal code, which meant you had to wear three articles of clothing that matched your ID. But for some reason, socks weren't included in that, so they started playing around with all the different ways they could get around with not being arrested if they were told to bring out their IDs to the cops that you know would harass them. But anyway, this that kind of is the backdrop of what was happening at the time. And um, one night, it was a very hot, sweltery night in August. The date they still don't know, um, and they still don't know the exact person who did this. But uh, a, a trans. woman had had enough. And uh, when a cop roughly handled her and picked her up from uh, the table at Compton's cafeteria, she was sitting at just enjoying her coffee. Because me, by the way, Compton's cafeteria was a place that all people went to at night to kind of check in with themselves to make sure they were safe. See, a lot of people at the time, you know, it was either, you know, you were either too effeminate to, to, wear uh boys clothes or too masculine to wear girls clothes and so you could never find a real quote unquote real job if especially if you were a black and brown trans person and so this to so the streets were their their place to work really it was the only place they could make a living and they wanted they needed to make a living they didn't want to live on the streets but it was the streets that paid their wages and so they would all end up at compton's cafeteria to make sure they were all safe and had survived another night um and and compton's cafeteria generally allowed them to be there but the management got a bundle of you know anger over that summer uh, events leading up to it and this one night a cop picked up a trans woman and said we're going away and she's like uh no we're not and threw her hot coffee in in the cop's face and <laughs> all hell broke loose, right? So, um, and eventually like the windows were smashed, people were throwing things, like newsstands were caught on fire and police came. And and it was the first time that trans and queer folk stood up to police harassment.
0: Um, Sounds like my kind of woman yeah right i know i know exactly me too i was like i want to know who this
1: woman is um and it's sad that when that is another thing about queer history is like it's you know it's like a game of telephone right like you over years you just you, you don't really know ex- the the, tr- the exact facts because they weren't reported on people could not come out and if they did come out they literally lost everything, and if their names were put in the paper, you know, saying this person was arrested for um, being homosexual or this trans person, you know, was arrested, either they they lost everything. They lost their jobs. They lost their friends. Their 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 names and addresses were put in the paper. They they were they lived in a constant state of fear, right? So the fact that we know any of this at all shows like this like sheer fortitude and bravery and courage of the especially black and brown trans folks who are the bedrock of our movement, whose shoulders I stand on. I'm able to talk to you today because of them. And that's exactly why I wanted to write about them in this, in this book and honor um, their place in in our movement, in our history. Um. So, so yeah. And, and I, I don't, I, to, to just finish up what you were asking in the second part of the question was to incorporate all of that into a fictional story is, you know, um, I think that's where a lot of the fun for me comes into it but, it. but I also make sure that every part of the historical context of the book is as accurate as can possibly be. Um, that's really important to me. Because I want to be sure the people who actually were the ones in the forefront, in the front lines of the movement are the ones we talk about and are honored.
0: So... You're listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Cap Brooks, in conversation with um, author James Brandon, who has a new book out, The Edge of Being, and an event tonight at the Tenderloin Museum in San Francisco at 6 o'clock p.m., which is serving as a book launch. Uh, Edge of Being is hitting the shelves, has been hitting the shelves uh, this month. I I maybe should have started with this. Fiction interviews or interviews about works of fiction are a little harder because you want to talk about how brilliant the work is but also don't want to give so much away that people don't actually pick up the book. So yeah. I'm going to ask you to just give, if you had to, we've talked about the, this this critical event in history that plays a very important role in the plot. But if you were to to give your own synopsis of the edge of being, Brandon, if you wanted to communicate to people about what this work is about, what would you say?
1: I would say um, the story is about Isaac Griffin, 17 year old Isaac Griffin, who is months away from graduating from high school and still hasn't found his purpose in life and has always felt like something was missing from him and never really had a sense of belonging in the world. And that's mostly because he attributes all of that to the fact that he's never known his dad. So in the early part of the novel, he discovers a box of artifacts from his dad that are in the attic stuffed deep in the attic and it unravels this quest for him to go on to finally find this person he's been missing his whole life and along the way he discovers a a just a plethora of history he knew nothing about and he takes this journey to san francisco and meets all sorts of people along the way and he begins to discover that, you know, there was something much bigger missing from his life than he ever thought possible.
0: I want to stick uh, talking about... um... Him for for a minute, and and would like you to talk a bit about the importance of fathers in helping us shape our identities, and how does um, Isaac Griffin or Fig? Mm-hmm. Uh, how does him not knowing his father serve both as a catalyst and an obstacle to his journey in this story?
1: Wow, that's a really beautiful question, and because it's, it's a very personal question for me, I know. Um, and that's <laughs> and that's why. I really wanted to write about this um, because you know, my dad was not a part of my life at all. And for a very long time, I felt like it, I put a lot of the kind of um, the, the onus of not knowing who I am or, the problems I was dealing with in my life or I attributed it at all to that. And, um, you know, uh, so in, in a nutshell, I watched my father die um, when I was 18. I, you know, I didn't know him through my childhood. And what I did know of him was, was very unpleasant. And we did not have, um, it, was a, it was a very abusive relationship. And it just, it, he was an alcoholic and I don't want to uh, diminish his spirit because I've really kind of worked on that in my life. And, you know, since he has transitioned and he is spirit to me, I feel more connected to him than I ever have before, to be honest. (laughs) Um, But at that time, uh, you know, when I watched my father die, I, I will say this for the rest of my life, that he is my greatest teacher. Not only did he put me through so much turmoil and tumult growing up, but in that moment of watching him die, I saw that what we are is just a shell, that what he actually was, the essence of him, kind of floated away with his last breath. And that kind of opened me up to realizing that we are so much more than what we see ourselves to be. And I was thrust on this journey to figure out what that was for me. That's when I just went on the spiritual quest at 18 and started just figuring out um, what resonated most with me. And so that's why I'll always say he was my greatest teacher. Um, and I wanted to infuse a lot of that into this book because, you know, uh, being a senior in high school and as we were just talking about, Um, you know, that comes with a lot, you know, there's a, there's a lot of change that happens and a lot of milestone moments that happen. And, and especially as you get near, you edge closer to graduation, there's this whole new world opening up for you about what to do next. Where am I going next? And who am I? And all those questions start percolating. And, and I really wanted to, um, have Isaac have that exploration of self. Uh, through the lens of, of, of missing this father, but realizing that there's something so much more, so much greater that he was missing, that he never let himself see. And by going on this quest, he begins to chip away at that and allow himself a deeper connection of self. Um, and I think, you know, when we go on those kinds of journeys, it really is about um, a, a, a sense of belonging and figuring out. Um, through, you know, creating your own family and your chosen family, creating your own tribe and, and finding your own connection to, to your source um, through that, you you really do can develop a sense of belonging that that's untouchable. And uh, that's, that's the, that's the themes I wanted to explore with this book.
0: Well, I guess a follow-up then to, to your answer to that question is given how closely that theme of the, the father resonates in your own personal life, what, if any, healing happened for you in the writing of The Edge of Being?
1: Um, it's, I, there's a part in this book that I, I won't talk too much about because I don't want to give it away, but I will say that, and I may get a little choked up talking about it because it's, when I think about it, it still really resonates deeply with me. Um, And that is that there's this, there's a sense of release that um, Isaac feels in a a connection to um, realizing that his self right now, as he is at his age at 17, has always been taking care of himself all of the years before that, right? So there's this kind of visual I always have with my own self that I'm holding my younger self's hand and just kind of in a spiritual form, walking hand in hand with him saying, you're okay, I got you, you, you made it, you survived and you're gonna be so, so happy. And, and it's, there's this healing that I think comes with that for me, knowing that I've always been there for me and, but that there's a bigger me that has been there for me. And um, I think that's, that's the healing journey that I ultimately went on uh, in regards to the con- connection or disconnection to my father.
0: That's really beautiful. Um, James, Brandon, this feels like a good point in our conversation to ask you to take a, just a couple of minutes and read us a passage from The Edge of Being, if you don't mind. Yes.
1: This is the first chapter of the book. I just thought I'd start with the beginning. <laughs> if broken hearts are maps to the soul, why do I keep getting lost? The billboard whizzes past me. I crane my neck to make sure I've read it correctly before winding around the curve, watching the sign slowly disappear in my rearview mirror, taunting me. Rose Tyler sits on my lap, perched on the window, her white fur blowing wildly in the wind. I stick my head out to join her. A gust rushes through, a cacophony of white noise freeing my thoughts, freeing me. I get it now, why dogs do this. Time is a sickness. The voice echoes amid the stillness. I sit back in the car. I didn't know anyone else was here, I say. I see them, but not really. The form of something. Flowing hair, billowing clothes, glowing so bright bright, I'm nearly blinded. And their voice is melodic, otherworldly. Maybe they're my guardian angel. Or maybe... Dad, is that you? Pull over. I have something to tell you. So I do. We're sitting in an orange tree orchard on the edge of a cliff. Sweet white blossoms snowing down on us. Below, waves thunder against jagged rocks. The sun scorches the sky, melting away the world's colors. We are the map makers of our own destiny. It's time for us to go, they say. Where to? Home. I want to reach out, to feel their hand in mine, but I can't move. They turn to face me. I squint, trying to see anything, like where I got the freckles on my nose, or why my eyes are an azure blue, or why my hair is a surfer blonde, anything to see more of me when they place their palm on my forehead and my eyes spring open that dream again.
0: Thank you so much. There you go, y'all. A little taste of the edge of being. We're speaking to James Brandon, uh, author of this new book. There is an event happening this evening at 6 o'clock p.m. at the Tenderloin Museum in San Francisco, where you'll be able to meet Brandon and hear him read a bit more from his book. Brandon, we spent earlier in the interview talking about you know, Compton Cafeteria Rebellions and a little about Stonewall and a little bit about the importance of, of queer history. Um, the reality is, right, like black and brown trans folks still suffer horrific brutality at the hands of law enforcement. Um, it, we're also in the middle where we're seeing attempts at some pretty draconian anti-trans, anti-gay legislation being implemented across the country. Um, Given these conditions, right? Um, how important is it that books like Edge of Being and and Ziggy and and other works of literature or media or art um, are uplifting the stories of the LGBTQ community? How, how important is it right now, as a form of resistance to some of of I can only call it a rolling back of humanity, um, that that art puts this community front and center.
1: Mm-hmm. That's the word exactly, resistance. To me, that's, that is the utter importance of why I write. Um, because it's exactly everything you're saying. Black and brown trans folks are still being killed daily. Um, and the anti-gay, anti-trans legislations that are being passed, even as we speak, and could get worse, and most likely will be, are headed in a very, um, as you say, draconian um, uh, direction. It's 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 why these books must exist for people to see. Now, um, um you know, unfortunately, in the communities where they're needed most, um, my books have been banned. So it's been very challenging to uh, get these to the folks who really should. Who really need them? You know, like who are really in it right now, and in the communities that um, are really trying to push their existence into some sort of oblivion. I'm not sure. Um, so, and and it's and the frustrating part is there's there's you know, people say um, cynical people, I would say, say that you know uh, any publicity is good publicity, right? So if your book's being banned, then that means people are talking about it. Well, no. That's actually not true. I think that, yes, maybe some people are talking about it. And sometimes, yes, it does equal more sales and more attention to the book. But generally speaking, um, it actually takes away, um, it disallows someone who, who may be in the middle of a serious identity crisis, who may feel isolated and alone, who may feel like they're the only ones out there going through this. It takes away the opportunity for them to see themselves in something that can help them, guide them to a deeper understanding of self. Right. And I think that that's what I mean when I talk about queer history is, you know, when you see yourselves as a part of something bigger than you, when you see that there have been people like you before you for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years that have actually created a great change to make humanity a better place. When you see that you are a part of that, there is an instinctual connection to your ancestry, to your heritage. And that grounds you in a world where you are, it's like you're the eye of a storm in the middle of the swirling societal tornado. That's the thing that grounds you. And books like this, like mine, like any LGBTQ book out there, and buy a POC book, they are the catalyst for those change for a lot of people. Um, And I I mean, I've been to communities where you go into the school's library and there is a specific section that is LGBTQ um, for the youth so that if they're too scared to even go talk to a librarian about where are the LGBTQ books, they don't need to ask. They can just discreetly go and find something on their own. And it allows that, it creates safety. It creates a sense of, of, of say, uh, it creates a safe space for those people who are really trying to figure out who they are. Um, and that's the thing, you know, when I, I'm a very, I'm aging myself, but so be it, I'm a proud Gen Xer. I'm a child of the <laughs> 80s and went to high school in the 90s. And I have to say, I didn't have any representation in my world, none at all. I didn't, I didn't know. I didn't have anything to hold on to. I didn't feel necessarily different, but I didn't feel, I felt a sense of isolation from my peers, especially like, you know, when we're in the middle of health class, and we're talking about these things that, you know, I'm supposed to have these feelings for girls and this is what you do with girls. And I'm the whole time I'm like, I don't have that. What does that mean about me? And I had nothing to like hold on to, right? Like I didn't have anything else to to compare to or, or say that this is okay that I don't have these feelings, right? Um, and so that's why I write these books for that person, for that teenager who really felt isolated and couldn't. Pinpoint why, but now has that. So I don't know the change that needs to happen, or in in terms of getting these books back on shelves, or um, because we're trying. But it is a fierce force that's happening right now, and it's it scares me, to be honest, at times. Um, but the thing I will say about it, and this is the thing I, I really mention in the book, is that the resilience and the strength especially of black and brown trans folks who, again, I will, are at the center and core of our movement. You know, something I read over and over and over again in my research is that those people who have the least to lose are at the front of the line, and that was always the case. And, you know, I know that that's still the case, and that's why I lift however I can those voices and use my voice as a white gay cis male to make sure that their voices are at the forefront. Um, so, you know, uh, it, it's, it, it's a very precarious time. And I just think the more we have these kinds of books and, and media and plays and, and things out there, the more art has the transformative power of, of conversation, of change in this world.
0: Some of that conversation, James Brandon, is happening tonight at the Tenderloin Museum at six o'clock. Tell people what they can expect should they show up.
1: So tonight, I'm super excited because um, I have two guests joining me at the Tenderloin Museum, um, and we're right in the heart of the Tenderloin, which is where Compton's Cafeteria right was, and it's the it what it is the first. "Quote unquote trans uh, neighborhood." It's 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 been deemed a trans neighborhood by the city. Yep, so, the
0: transgender district run by the amazing gender, Aria herself.
1: There we go. Right. So yeah, I'm super excited. And two guests joining me tonight, Dr. Susan Stryker is is a scholar and historian, completely renowned. And she used to work at the GOPT Historical Society uh, in San Francisco, and is actually the one who discovered this moment of Compton's cafeteria when she was archiving materials for the historical society. She, uh, yeah, she found it uh, like a small paragraph written amongst like, you know, sales at Woolworths and things like that, you know, like it was like not a big headline by any stretch, but she found it and was like, what is this? And just started researching and uncovered this treasure trove of, of history so it's because of her, we know about this moment now. Um, so I'm super excited that she gets to join me tonight and talk more in full about this moment and what led up to it and 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 what came from it really, because a lot of great change came from it. Um, and also joining me is is Adrian Ravavor, who was uh, one of the co-founders of Vanguard, which was the first queer youth-led organization in the U S and Vanguard was a huge part of those months leading up to the riot um, because they were all about uh, cleaning the streets of the tenderloin uh, because the cops in the, the city wouldn't do it. Right. So that their focus was to help their trans friends, um, you know, who worked on the streets. They wanted them to have a clean space to live and, 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 and work basically. I mean, that's one of many things that they worked on, but Vanguard was a revolutionary uh, uh, queer youth-led organization, and I'm so excited to have Adrian be a part of uh, the evening with me to talk about that. So, yeah, it's, it's going to be, a, I think, a really great night. I'm excited.
0: And that's tonight at the Tenderloin Museum at 6 o'clock p.m. James Brandon, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you so much for this new work. Thank you so much for being the amazing human you are. It's been great to catch up.
1: Kat, thank you so much. It's been a dream talking to you again. I just, I love you so.
0: (laughs) I love you too. You're listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Cap Brooks. We've been talking to author James Brandon. He has a new book out, The Edge of Being, in an event tonight at the Tenderloin Museum in San Francisco at 6 o'clock. Brandon produced and played the central role in the internationally acclaimed tour of Terrence McNally's Corpus Christi for a decade, is the co-director of the documentary film Based on Our Journey, Corpus Christi Playing with Redemption. He is the co-founder of the I Am Love campaign, an arts-based initiative Bridging the Faith Based and the 2SLGBTQ Plus communities, and serves. On the board of the Bay Area American Indian Two Spirit in San Francisco, he has been a contributing writer for HuffPost, Believe Out Loud, and Spirituality and Health Magazine. He is the author of the 2019 novel Ziggy Stardust and Me, and now the amazing new piece of work we've been discussing today, The Edge of Being. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive.